Well, hi everybody and welcome. This is Toby Miller, it's the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm here in, what is the name of this restaurant? Pesantissimo, I guess most peasant-like, who knows what it means. In Primrose Hill, are we in Primrose Hill? Primrose Hill. Primrose Hill with my new friend, Dr. Martha Vanden Blyde. How are you, Martha? I'm very well, how are you? I'm well, thanks for coming out tonight. And we've, uh, we're almost on to my second glass of wine, and we're on to her first glass of wine. We're here in this restaurant because I inveigled her to come and talk about her work. And the reason I wanted to do this is, at least in part, because you're very unusual in your combination of professions. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, I'm an actress and a sociologist. An actress and a sociologist? <laughs> Thank you very much. I hope you don't mind using this chair. Thank you. And I've been all my life. All your life? I was going to ask you which came first, but they came acting. together? Acting came acting first. Came first. I don't think there are many 11 years old who are sociologists. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. What is the youngest ever sociologist? <laughs> so you started acting at 11? Well, 10, something like 10, that. Yeah. yeah. I guess Maybe a lot of us do some acting when young. Yeah. 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 Um, and you're, you're a professional actress now. You have been since then. Um, so how did they converge? Did you wake up one morning when you were 12 or 20 and say, oh my god, I'm not just an actress. I'm not just Dutch. I'm not just a woman. I'm not just mother. I am a sociologist. What happened? Um, well, I still wake up every morning thinking, who am I? Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, no, I I did acting. I always did acting in high school. I did acting. Then uh, I didn't go to theatre school. I went to study. And first I studied Roman languages. Roman languages. Yes. Where did you do that? In Groningen, in Holland. Yeah, well. Groningen. Yeah. Which begins with a G, but you say Groningen. In Groningen, where I was, where I was born. It's a beautiful word. Groningen. Groningen. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And um, yes, and then while I was studying that, I was doing acting as well, and I did a lot of political sort of social activism. So some of my friends said, yeah, you know what, instead of, and I couldn't really get Spanish, I couldn't get myself to learn Spanish very well. And so I didn't want to really learn Spanish perfectly. I was like, as long as I can make myself understand. And it, that's all swear, that Yeah, that matters. I'm not a language person. And my friend said, oh, why don't you start to study sociology? So what, that's what I did. But I always, at the same time, I just joined the theatre society. I was, I did auditions for the main company of the university. Yeah. It's called the Gerucht. And, uh, we say that again. Gerucht. Gerucht. <laughs> yeah. Which means that's that. That's impossible to say. Yeah, I know. Gerucht. <laughs> Gerucht. That's fabulous. Doesn't sound sexy, does it? It doesn't sound sexy. It sounds like you're quite ill. But anyway, yeah. So, um... <laughs> no. Yeah. And, um... <laughs> no. And, uh... Yeah, we did plays of uh, Fassbinder. And, yeah, I always did acting. And, How wonderful. Yeah. And so, 
you ran away from Spanish and fell into the arms of sociology. Right, your, yeah. Your great romance, your passion in university. Yes. <laughs> what, what drew you to sociology? Well, I think I all... Some linguistic people really want to understand the language and yeah. I really wanted to understand society. Yeah. I really wanted to... I'm not a group, uh, I'm a loner maybe, I'm not a group person, so I'm obsessed by understanding groups because it's so alien to me. It's so alien to you. <laughs> I think that's, looking back, that's sure. something no, like that must... Yeah, yeah. And yet acting is quite a collective enterprise, isn't it, often? I mean, it might be a one-woman show, but most of the time, you're in a group of people trying to make art together. Yes, yes. Yeah. And because I, you know, I love to be around people and I love to be, you know, have fun and go out and be the life and the soul of the party. That's a side of me as well. Right. And I think there are many actors who are also very uh, observant, you know, who like to... You can't be, yeah, I like to study. You yeah. are, you, and I, I only later on started to understand that there's so many um, similarities between being a sociologist and an actress. Say some more about that, that's very interesting. Because people would all... Uh, when I was a student it's all fine and it's very normal because, you know, some people play uh, music, others go horse riding, whatever, and you study, yeah. you do all those things. Sure. Only when it ends, at the end of your study, suddenly you have to supposedly choose. You specialize and you become one thing. You have you... to become one thing, or people want you to become one thing, or something like that, or you want yourself to yeah. become one thing. And then the distinction starts, and then I started to, uh, to uh, ask myself, what am I going to choose? But recently I discovered it in the nature. Thank you very much. The pen is lovely. Wow. Wow. <laughs> My God. Any problems, sir? Not for me, thank you. No, thank you. Enjoy whatever did. This looks great. That does look wonderful, doesn't it? That is the biggest plate for salad I've ever seen. I know, and it's wonderful uh, arranged. It's beautifully presented, isn't it? Yeah. We could probably make a little more room. You want to use that? I think I'll take we this. this I'll take some more olive oil. Yes. Some of the olive oil. Very good. So, in a sense, you refused this idea of specialization. Yeah. Becoming one thing in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I just could not. <laughs> How do you say, you know, to your health in Dutch? Prost. Prost. Cheers. Salud. Prost. Salud. To full employment. Now, <laughs> Slauncher. Slauncher. Mm. Wow, this penne alla is fantastic. Is it nice? The right choice? Well, who knows? It has some rosemary on the top, which I really like. Mm. Beautiful. You've got mozzarella cheese in huge amounts. Amazing some tomatoes, looking. some salad. This is proper. That Buffalo. is the real deal. Buffalo. That's real. 
you've got avocado, you've got your model's diet, wow. supermodel diet there on the left hand side. Mm, nice! This is what, when you love food in Dutch, you make this silly move. You go like, mm. oh, so what she's doing is turning her head slightly to the right yeah, and then, then waving, waving her hand and next to her ear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did it for the first time when I lived in New York briefly and the waitress asked me, and how was your food? And, and, you I, did and I did. I didn't know it was just the Dutch. Did you know this? No. This is what the Dutch do when they like food. <laughs> yeah. I'm just learning this tonight. Yeah. And when I did this to the to the to the waitress, you, right? she did like this. She started. <laughs> <laughs> so she waved back. She, I, I didn't realize it was not an international symbol, and she started That's to. That's funny. <laughs> so sweet. So sweet. No wonder my daughter thinks the Dutch are just effortlessly hip. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we are. You have your very own sign are. language. Mm, there we go. That is just wonderful. <laughs> I've never seen that gesture. I'm going to use it from now on. You like that? That will mean whenever there are Dutch people in the room, they they're going to come over to me and speak Dutch. Yeah, right? and all the others are going to wave to you. <laughs> and everybody else will wave at me. So. For you, some of this is about a dialectic or an oscillation, comfortable or uncomfortable, natural or unnatural, easy or difficult, between group and individual interests and ways of seeing the world. Yeah? So you come out of your degree having acted for 10 years or so, and having studied sociology for three or four years. And what happens to you then? I thought, you know, that I had to, to, to choose or somehow. Then I did my PhD in Ireland and I started to do the same again. And you went to Ireland to do my after PhD. your undergraduate? Yeah, yeah, to yes. do my PhD. Yes. Yeah. And where did, I mean, you actually told me this when we met before, but for the purposes of our listeners, yeah. where did you go to do the PhD? Dublin, mm -hmm. Trinity College Dublin. A wonderful, famous university. Yeah, briefly, after I did my master's, briefly I thought I had to choose, so I worked for a bank. It was the least creative period of my life. I worked for a bank and I didn't do any acting, nothing. I was frequently ill. No acting, no sociology, lots of banking, lots of yeah. management. Yeah, lots of management. It was, but then... Um, as soon as I started to do sociology again, my PhD, I started to do the acting again. So they go hand in hand. So you're in Ireland. How long ago is this now? A couple of years ago. A couple of years ago. You're in Ireland. You're working on the doctorate and you're acting. Can you tell us about those two tracks that you're on? In, uh, let's start with the academic track. Mm -hmm. What topic are you focusing on in your PhD when you arrive in Dublin? <clears throat> My uh, main interest uh, was the um, the question whether globalization leads to more cultural sameness. Yes or no? Or if there is a resistance or if there is a change of uh, thinking. So the title of my PhD is um, 
The Universal Surname. The Universal Surname? Yeah. What a great title. You yeah. like it? And then is there, is there a colon? And then after the colon, yeah. there are um, more words? Yeah, it's a, an, a theoretical empirical inquiry into the relationship between globalizations and sameness and difference. And so I'm interested in what makes us unique, or I'm interested in the dialectic between the things that we share and what makes us unique as a person. So later on, when I started to think about that, I realized that it has a lot to do with a sociology in acting. Because as a sociologist, you look at a group. You study a group. And by definition, you study what the group has in common. You know? And as an actor, you always look at an individual person. You want to portray uh, a unique character. You study yeah. what makes a person unique. Yeah. You see, so I think they're very complementary. So you're, um, you were suggesting earlier that a major feature of acting is what we might call in sociology or anthropology, participant observation. Yeah, or just observation. I mean, yeah, my, the first advice I got from my uh, first director in Ireland, an amazing uh, Jewish director, Victor Feldman, told me if you want to become a better actor, just sit in, in, in the pub <laughs> and look at, uh, observe people, observe their movements, you know, observation. That's what acting is about, you observe people. But in the same way, when you sit, that's why, that's how I realized it's very compatible. It's very similar acting and sociology because in the same way that you can observe a group in a pub, see how they move, you can observe individual people. Let's get back to your dissertation for a moment if we can. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about some of the theoretical work that you do in that. Uh, explain to us about your ideas of globalization and ideas of cultural difference and sameness. Mm. So I did a study in um, in Ireland, which was very globalized at the time. This might be getting very boring. Mm. <coughs> and. Um, I wanted to know uh, if, due to more globalization, local identity, local languages would disappear. Um, so I studied a small village uh, that was very strongly globalized because it had a huge uh, factory of Intel, the biggest factory of Intel outside America, and a huge factory of Hewlett Packards on a population of 50,000 people. <coughs> so I said, that's the micro global village. It's the, at the time, Ireland was the most globalized country in the world, and this within Ireland is the most globalized village. Ergo, we have the most, we have the global village here. What is happening in this global village? And instead of, um, instead of uh, the local identity uh, fading out or disappearing, it became reinforced. So the uh, number of Irish speakers was higher than ever before after Intel and Hewlett Packard came to uh, Ireland. 
That's a wonderful story. What do you attribute that to? Um, my, uh, and then I went to an island to contrast the case, which is also strongly globalized in the sense that there was a lot of tourism. But the islanders remained a strong sense of autonomy. So they didn't allow any foreign companies coming to their islands. Uh, instead, they went themselves to Japan to find out how to attract themselves, Jap uh, Japanese tourists from Japan. So everything on that island that was global was creation of their own imagination and their own action and their own initiative. So and on that island I didn't see a um, resurgence of Irish speaking, instead I saw a decline of Irish speaking. So my theory was uh, there is a difference between different forms of globalization, dominant globalization, something that is imposed on us from the outside and in a way that was the case in the global village because the Irish government has decided that that village would be the new headquarters of Intel. <clears throat> and there's another form of globalization, autonomous globalization. <clears throat> Individual actions of you and me to connect to the world. And that sort of globalization creates harmony and uh, sameness, but not sameness that is imposed. We, in you and me, become more the same because we talk. It's more organic. It's more organic, exactly. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. And were you doing this at the time of the global financial crisis? No, just before it. Just before? Yeah. So the high watermark of the Irish embrace of the global. Yeah, the Celtic tiger in full force. The Celtic tiger in full force. How's that tiger doing now? Do you know what life is like I in haven't that been, village and on that island? Well, yeah, I haven't been uh, back physically to the islands, but... Um, of course, the Irish economy has uh, had collapsed, but it's also... It's wonderful. It's very nice. But it's also, underneath the surface, you could feel uh, polarization. You know, you could feel the sort of uh, rejection. And the same what you feel in, in Europe. You know, in the European countries, the European Union is, a, I think, a very good project, but it is imposed in a way. It's a form of dominant globalization. It's not organic. And that comes, you know, the, the, the reaction comes back at some point. So when the, when the crisis hit the world, I was thinking this global island that I saw, you know, you can make a distinction between a global village, the past, divided, uh, characterized by dominant globalization, and a global island. And in global islands, there's no escape. You know, there's on an island, you're literally in all, all of it together. You have to make it work. Yeah. You cannot, there's, there might be a global village and another village. You know, villages can compete, but the islanders are alone in the fight against the sea. And that, I think, is the future of humanity. You mentioned. So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, we we make a transition from a global village, you know, McLuhan's uh, global village, with dominant powers connected but not uh, united. 
maybe that's the right word. We were connected but not united. But in the future we will not have the option of not being united because the islanders have to fight against the sea. And this is just one day after Sandy, the storm. We will have to fight against the elements and not fight against each other. Now, you mentioned this, and of course, coming from the Netherlands, your origins lie in a place that in many ways shouldn't exist. Well, I'm happy it does, but yeah. So am I, because of course it's the source of all hippies, as we discovered earlier in the conversation. But I'm very glad it exists. I have lots of Dutch friends, or a few anyway, and a great admiration for Dutch academic work, artistic work, uh, and football. Okay. So, you know, amongst many other things. Um, you come from a place that has had a ceaseless battle with the elements. Yeah. yeah. Simply to exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, in all seriousness, right? It's yeah. fair to say. And I wonder if that's part of your not not to not, we should not say embrace of, but appreciation of the power of water mm. and the way in which, given climate change, water is going to dominate the world even more than it does already in terms of its absence of presence. Well, I thought a lot when I went to Ireland about uh, the influence that the landscape has on, on your own attitudes or your own thinking. Because, you know, as the saying said, the, the God made, created the world and the Dutch made uh, Holland. <laughs> you know? I didn't know that saying, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it gives a lot of confidence that you can face enormous uh, adversities and turn it into your favor and even into a country where you can live from and be relatively wealthy. Um, and when I came to Ireland, you have mountains in Ireland, obviously you have no mountains in Holland. The mountains have a very opposite effect on, on how you feel. Because when you see mountains, you think, wow, how small, I'm so small. You know, when you see a dike, you think, wow, look at me, look what we did, look how we battled the sea. But when you see a mountain, you think, wow. I feel small and I think that uh, attitude of humbleness, that's why I think there's so many great Irish actors. <laughs> I think for in order to be a great actor, you have to be really humble. Who are you thinking of when you mention great Irish actors? Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, which I think is a completely and also an uh, introvert man who lives in Wicklow, in the Wicklow Mountains. Uh, locks himself a year up to prepare for the role in uh, in the gangs of New York. You know, uh, I like Maureen O'Hara. I, I uh, attended a seminar with her once, very Maureen feisty. O'Hara, really? Maureen O'Hara, yeah. How old was she when you... 86 or something like that? She played Jane to Tarzan, right? Yeah. Tarzan. Yeah, and in The Quiet Man. She's feisty, lady. But, um, yeah, wonderful actor. Many great Irish actors. 
And you think some of that derives from this sense of dealing with the awesome and the infinite of the power of nature. Hmm. Is, uh, <clears throat> yeah, there's a great sense of spirituality in Ireland, which is not so characteristic for Holland. So that's different. Holland is an engineering marvel. Yeah. It shows what you can, you know, achieve. And but Ireland shows the fruit of creativity. You know, there's no country that has produced so many for such a small country Nobel Prize winners in writing. And uh, that was one of the things that I saw when uh, Intel and Hewlett Packard came to Ireland. They were teaching skills of, of uh, technical skills were valued much higher. Whereas traditionally in Ireland, a lot of emphasis was placed on artistic skills, history, languages, art. It was very, you know, very high prestigious in Ireland. In Holland, that's much less prestigious. In Holland, technicality is very prestigious. I thought it was interesting. But you have great artists historically in Holland? We do. A lot of painters, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Raymond. Van Dijk, right? Van Dijk? Van Dijk, Vermeer. Vermeer. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess, so was part of what attracted you to Ireland to study the idea of another small country in terms of population? but a large country in terms of its impact on the world. Yes. I like small countries. <laughs> like the Netherlands. <laughs> and now my film is about Sierra Leone, also a small country. And uh, uh, a country that shows enormous resilience. Tell us about Sierra Leone, your experience of it, your time there. Well, um, Sierra Leone is one of the poorest countries of the world, still, but quickly uh, fighting back after an, uh, the end of a long civil war. And, uh, yeah, it's of course a completely different country, a non-European country. I think in Ireland you would find a lot of spirituality as well, but more creativity, artistic. And in, in Sierra Leone you find the, the greatest strength of human spirit, what human spirit is capable of in, uh, in the face of adversity. And I find that, again, exceptionally uh, humbling. So. When did you first go to Sierra Leone? In 2008, four years ago. And what drew you there? Just a friend inviting me. <laughs> a friend inviting you. And then you got there and you felt as though there was something more you wanted to do and say. 
Yes, uh, at that time um, there was a lot of strife between Muslims and Christians in Holland and that was absent in, uh, in Ireland and I got interested in that. But people like me, <laughs> Holland is often seen as a paradise of tolerance, relative equality, a welfare state, a liberal welcoming attitude to difference, and a sense of what, if things were better, places like Britain or the United States could be. Really? But that's not true now, if it was ever true, is it? Well, it's getting better now, but for the last 10 years it was pretty intolerant. It seems to be abated now a little bit. It's getting better. Yeah. What went wrong and what made it go right? Well, these are big questions. Cross some more water when you get a shot. She doesn't like me. <laughs> Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, what went wrong to turn it from this social democratic paradise imagined by people like me? Really? Yeah, oh, definitely, and lots more, into something that was horrendous in terms of polarization, and what's made it better since then? Well, I haven't been back for a little while, so I can't say to what extent it has been better. Um, I was there just. <coughs> Thank you very much. That was delicious. I was there just uh, half a year ago, and um, at that point, uh, the right-wing party of Wilders had just. Geert Wilders. Geert Wilders had just found. Geert Wilders. Geert Wilders. I'm just trying to correct her pronunciation. You had to spew it out. Geert. Yeah, like you want to throw up. That's the way you have to pronounce it. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And I'm sure all <laughs> listeners will be practicing. That's that one, two, three. Real it is. As if you want to grow up. And um, he founded some sort of a website where you can file complaints against Polish people. Against Polish people? Yeah. Charming. You told me about this actually when we yeah, met before. Yeah, yeah, because it was so shocking. And I was uh, at the time, and I still am, in a play about Anne Frank, uh, which is a very special play. Um, uh, it's about the world of Anne Frank, but the lead character is Eva Schlosch. And you know her? Yeah, she is the stepsister, the step-sister. Of, Anne, of, Anne, of Anne Frank. And we are performing the play in schools around London to raise awareness about intolerance. So we performed at the Jewish school, we performed at a Muslim school, performed at very expensive rich schools, and we performed in poor schools to raise awareness about, you know, the, what the consequences could, uh, could be from uh, tolerance, intolerance and hatred. And here I am doing this in London, I come back in, in, in Holland and they Without any second thought, apparently, there was a website uh, where you can file uh, as if I was back in the Second World War. So it's strange, it's so persistent, this, this sentiment. Anyway, he lost with the elections, so... <laughs> Tell us a bit about this play. It sounds very, very interesting. You're playing Anne Frank's 
stepsister. Ifotchlos, it's the, her story. It's her story. And you told me before about the remarkable family and friendship genealogy, lineage that linked these families. Yeah. Right? That these two girls were best friends. Well, they were not best friends. No. no. Oh. But they lived in the same uh, Built the same apartment. Yeah, though. yeah. Eva Schloss uh, was born in Austria in 1929, and uh, she flew to Holland uh, for when after the Anschluss in Austria, and she ended up on the same square where Anne Frank lived as well. So, th so they played together, you know, like that. Uh, and then Anne Frank, of course, uh, sadly died during the war. And Eva Schloss survived miraculously with her mother, and uh, they uh, got in touch with the father of Anne Frank after the war, and her mother and Anne Frank's father married. So, so posthumously, they yeah, were stepsisters. Yeah, yeah. And I have some exciting news because we uh, go with the play to South Africa. Wonderful. Yeah, on the, in the first week of December. So I'm now in rehearsing, uh, and so we're going to perform the play on Robben Island. Where, of course, Nelson Mandela was imprisoned. Yeah, yeah. on the 10th of December. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it means just, it's a universal message against hatred, uh, apartheid, and against exclusion. Yeah, yeah. And what time period is covered in the play? What years are you acting in this role? Uh, in terms of her age or...? Yeah, so it starts briefly, uh, it starts when uh, the Germans invade Austria and when she is attacked in school for the first time, which is around 1939. They move to Holland. She's about 16... She's 14. 14. Yeah. So they go to Holland hoping... No, younger. She's 11. By 11. the end of the war, yeah, she's 14. They go to Holland. Uh, they go into hiding for 22 months. Uh, they're betrayed. And uh, they go to Auschwitz. And the play ends after Auschwitz, so 1945. They uh, are liberated by the Russians. And they go back uh, by train to... Europe, via France, Turkey, back to Holland. And she grows up, I mean, she's young still at the end of the war. Yeah. So she grows up as very much as Dutch after the war. She stayed for seven years in Holland, and, uh, but she found it difficult, of course, as I can uh, imagine. And just to open her mind, she moved to London because her, grand, uh, her grandparents moved to England. And uh, so then she, she lived, started to live, she got married here. And uh, she was silent for years and years and years. And suddenly, the whole story came out. Very special. How wonderful. And who wrote the play? Uh, James Silver. And it's directed by Nick Karim of the Blue Sky Network. And Nick is a tirelessly um, 
advocating uh, tolerance. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. So, in this play, you are playing a woman of how old? Fourteen. Fourteen. <laughs> now, I was thinking about that because my first yeah. part ever yeah. in my life, when I was ten, you know what I played? A grandmother. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I played in a musical which was hilarious and it was about set in the far future, the year 2010, <laughs> <Duh>. <laughs> where people would not drink milk anymore, it was subsidized by the milk uh, companies, <laughs> but only eat pills, vitamin pills, and there was only one woman left who had secretly uh, a cow in her backyard, uh, where she was milking and give, providing real uh, milk to the children. That's and hysterical. that was me. <laughs> and I, I got powder in my hair to make it look grey. <laughs> so I was thinking about that when I was 11, I played a grandmother and I played myself. Now, when you try to occupy and obviously succeed in occupying, the body of a 14-year-old. How do you prepare? I don't want to give away acting secrets, but to the extent you can tell us, how do you prepare yourself? Because on the one hand, you're being somebody who is considerably younger than you are. On the other, you're preparing yourself with somebody who is going through the worst imaginable trauma that anybody could endure. Well, I prepare myself by watching everything I could possibly find about uh, that time, historically, and about Eva herself, of course, there's a lot of YouTube clips. And uh, that's the other thing, which is similarity between sociology and acting, and that's uh, commitment to the truth. Commitment to the truth. You want to find truth. As an actor, you know, David Mamet wrote the beautiful book, uh, True or False. He says, as an actor, you are on the stage to speak the truth. You speak the truth. Theatre, people, the audience come to the theatre, whether they know it or not, to hear the truth. So as an actor, you want to speak the truth. You think it might be lies because they're made up lines, but it's the truth. And that's the same as an, academ as an academic. Ideally, you're looking for the truth. A lot of people are mostly looking for publications and citations. <laughs> but that's... Ideally, you're committed to the truth, and in this case, with the Auschwitz play, is it extremely important because there's still people who deny the Holocaust, you know, and Eva is uh, still alive and attends so fit and so strong that she can attend the play. Afterwards, people always wanted to see her too. That's an ultimate truth, you know, so you can prove the truth. She has the mark on her forearm. Yeah, she still has the mark. But there's still, when I was doing my research, there's still so many people who deny the Holocaust or say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Or, or a lot of people even, I was amazed how many likes I saw when I watched Hitler's speeches. That's shocking to me. It's really shocking. On, on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, go and watch that. You know, people say you make the most crazy commands. They said, well, he was maybe a bit of a nasty guy, but at least there was no obesitas. People were disciplined in the Third Reich. Or, you know, people made crazy comments. You know, so 
you can never take it for granted. Sure. The director of the play always says, Nikari, uh, evil comes when good people do nothing. It's a famous old saying. Yeah. And you know, so you uh, you have to do something. <laughs> Going back in time a little bit, then. Uh, to when you were doing your doctorate in Ireland, in Dublin, but also acting. Could you share? I'm very conscious you've got a lot of food to get through there. Yeah, but I at least any time. I know. You well, don't leave me any time to I'm eat. not leaving you enough time, so I'm going to talk very slowly <laughs> and with lots of words. <laughs> but listeners, you should know that it's not as though the food is getting cold, so I can't be blamed for that. It's a salad. It was exactly. Cold in the so it doesn't matter. <laughs> But you're, you know, trying Toby to... Toby's salads don't get cold, they cold by definition. Thank you so much. And there you are, chowing down, so I'm not going to take any more of this insolent, difficult response. But seriously, uh, when you're in Ireland doing the doctorate, you're also acting. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the acting you're doing back then. What I was doing? Um, it started... Uh, when I attended a small workshop in a youth hostel. I didn't intend to go to Ireland to become an actress. But, you know, I was thinking I'd do something on the side. Yeah. And I got along really well with the whole group. And uh, so one day the director said, why don't you come along uh, next week? Because we are performing for a play. We are rehearsing for a play. You can watch and see, you know, what we're doing. Yeah. So, um, I... Um, step by and I was only two or three weeks in Ireland or something like that and uh, something happens they're performing you know a guy falls ill on stage but that's what you know the play is about he's in a hospital yeah and he's praying you know it's in Catholic Ireland and uh, he's praying to uh, sister Concepta the nun and uh, so he says oh please sister it's a comedy so she's called sister Concepta and, <laughs> and the director goes the nun no 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 where's the nun where's the nun uh, oh yeah she she was uh, out of the pub last night she couldn't make it fuck we don't have time <laughs> He missed the part, and I'm just watching there. And the director, Victor, goes like, uh, Martha. Uh, can you be a nun? A nun, a nun can be Dutch. She can be any language. You played the nun. You got thrown in. Yeah. Break a leg, as the old saying goes. Yeah. In this case, be an Irish actor drunk yeah. in a pub the night before. Yeah, exactly. We've and so I've heard of it. Yeah, it was absurd. So my first part in Ireland was as an uh, as a nun, a sister concept. Sister conceptor. <laughs> and my and friends in Holland couldn't believe it. They said, "You're overdoing it. You go to Ireland, which they thought was relatively you become odd. You a nun. You lock yourself you up. <laughs> What's next? You're going to be in, you know, rebel. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. That's so, wonderful. So then I was having a laugh and having a great time. And in one evening, apparently there was some sort of, a, people said it was an academic audience. So they were all sitting down and apparently having a great time without making any sound. Well, of course not. One shouldn't. <laughs> One shouldn't, yeah. So, you know. The rest of the actors, we were all like, I don't know what's happening there's tonight. No with you. There's no interaction, what's going interaction, on? Nothing, you know. And, uh, you know, so the director said, just, you know, you go out there and you 
fucking enjoy yourself. You know, that was the best. Very good advice. The best stage direction I ever got. <laughs> Great guy, uh, Ronan Wilmot. And so, so I was like, I just go. I'm in go there, out I'm there. going to have a good time. I'm going to have a good time. Just like that. So I was just a concept and I had a splendid time. And I had to run off through the audience. You know, that was the end of the show. And I sit down. Yeah. And uh, there's a guy with a big baseball cap. And he said, were you just performing? I said, yeah. It was pretty good. You have a CV. No, I did not even know what it was, you know. Come by the theater and uh, drop your CV. We need an, uh, a continental actress. <laughs> And who was that? That was Ronan Wilmot, uh, who runs the new theatre in Dublin. And uh, through him I got the chance to play uh, in, in the play about the Beatles. You told me about this, this is the Alan Williams yeah, story. Yeah, yeah right? the Alan what, Williams story. Now, uh, Alan Williams was a... a you know more about the Beatles than I knew. Oh, come on. I know nothing about the Beatles compared to you. <laughs> <laughs> what I know is you played the part of somebody that I had a crush on when I was a teenager. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Well, I had my I secrets. You didn't you're tell not, me you were you're not the only one with That's a secret. That's why you're so interested that to you're me that you're still alive. You're not the only one to have secrets. <laughs> I've got a very exciting private life. I haven't discovered it yet, but I know it's out there. Keep looking, keep looking. <laughs> no, when I was a teenager, I was very... Uh, you were in love with Astrid Kircher. I was keen She's on the Beatles, alive. and I was interested in Klaus Vormann, yeah. who had done, I think, the cover art for Revolver, one of their albums, and... Asi Kirchner was his girlfriend, and you told me, I think, that was it George Harrison was in love with her or somebody? Maybe they all were. No, um, Stuart Sutcliffe. Stuart Sutcliffe, who'd been the bass guitarist, I guess, of the Beatles and then died uh, tragically young. Uh, and then, you know, she was one of these people, she was the first woman that I associated with. She was the first woman that I associated with the Beatles. Yeah. And in those days, we all thought Linda and Yoko were evil witches who had pulled the boys apart. Whereas Astrid was wonderful, ethereal, beautiful, and she had not pulled the boys apart. So it's a correct femininity, you see. This, you know, misogynistic, stupid, male fantasy about male artists talk, right? That's what it was. Anyway, so... Uh, this play goes on, and you play Astrid. There was a song, Goodbye Astrid, Goodbye. Can I get a cup of tea, maybe, when you have a chance? That's fine. I have so much to eat, though. You can take some of it home. Well, why are you complaining? Ever since this podcast began, you know, she doesn't like the way that I talk. She doesn't like the... No, I'm just kidding. So, tell us about this play. Well, it's a long time ago, but it was lovely because it was my first uh, major performance on stage. And you met Alan Williams, did you not? I did, he, yeah, he, he was there. Yeah. But I, at the time, what I find so special is that life is so unexpected. You know, 
because you, it's not logical to go to Ireland and become an actress. It doesn't make any sense. It would have been more rational to stay in Holland, you know? You would think, who needs a Dutch girl in Ireland acting? It doesn't make any sense. And yet it happens. And the same with the play about Eva Schloss was really strange. It's accidental. Thank it's you so much. It's accidental because... Because I walked into a theatre last uh, last year uh, in uh, an area in the area just in Camden where I live, and uh, I was just looking out, uh, checking out a location for a photo shoot, and I walk uh, into the theatre just in the reception area. Yes. I say, uh, oh sorry, am I disturbing uh, because there were two people there sort of happening to talk. No, no, you're not disturbing at all. Uh, the, the guy says, are you an actress? I said, yes. Oh yes, really, because uh, we're doing a play about Anne Frank. I said, well, I'm Dutch. Oh really? But it's not really about Anne Frank, it's about Eva Schloss and uh, she's from Austria. I said my grandma My was grandmother from was from Austria. <laughs> Wonderful. And a year later we go to Robben Island. Isn't that unbelievable? That is an extraordinary coincidence. Well it's just like, you know, nothing is planned, you know, and that is what I find so exciting. I have to say to you though, uh, Martha, that when you're talking about acting versus talking about sociology, even though these things have gone together very well for you, from what you've said, you're more passionate and you seem happier talking about acting. <laughs> yeah. That's just my perception. That's what all my friends say. <laughs> I know. Maybe it's the future. And what about stage acting versus other kinds of acting? Film, television? Well, I like web. to do things that I find interesting. You know, so I would not, I, I have no intention, my goal is not to be famous, but I want to be uh, challenged. And so, you know, so I would not go for a soap or something like that. But, and uh, I love the stage, but the amazing thing of film is that it always stays. That's the yes. That's the even the small student films that I did in Ireland are still there, and all those performances, the theatre performance, sometimes they're gone, aren't they? Yeah, it's the part of the attraction as well because it's very intense. You know, it's there and then it's gone. How important is the audience in this? You mentioned earlier the difficulty of performing before that very scholarly crowd that didn't really respond, didn't really react to what you were doing and left the entire company feeling rather empty. What role do you think an audience can play in the performance that actors put on in a drama? Well, in the same performance, I think, in spite of the audience, it was my best performance of that drama. 
so it's not so black and white. Sometimes. Right, it's interesting. <laughs> Were you trying harder to win the most? No, less. You thought, fuck you, <laughs> fucking <laughs> academics. No, I didn't know there were academics at the time. No, you just I knew know. there was no energy coming from No, no. So I'm you saying, didn't try, and in fact, you put on a great show. That's yeah. wonderful. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, love it. Yeah. I think the less you try, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because well, the, other, the other thing is, I learned. If you're not enjoying it, the audience is definitely not going to enjoy it, you know? So if you are there, oh no, I have to do this part, oh no, you know, there's no energy. Then that so, will communicate itself yeah. to those watching. So I'm not greatly interested, to be honest, in the audience. <laughs> no offense, but, you know, it's because it's so feeble. You know, audience, no, they can like it or not, or whatever. You see my point? Yeah, so your art is what has to carry you through. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's your commitment to, to the moment. Now, we've got just a couple of minutes left, and then you can return fully to your wine and your salad. Yes. I wonder if, just to finish up, you could tell us a little bit about what the future holds for you. What you are planning to do, what you are doing, what you want next. As sociologist, as actress, as cultural producer, let's say. Well, um, right now, you know, for the next month I do two things. I'm writing an essay about uh, the elementary forms of religious life, of Durkheim. Founder of sociology, modern Founder sociology, sociology in yeah. yeah, and uh, and I'm rehearsing for the Eva Schloss play and preparing for South Africa. So uh, that's the that's the immediate future. That's the immediate future. But you mean the far future? No, no, you can do either. The and immediate is fine. Uh, so after is the far. that, I'm working on the film, on my film about uh, Sierra Leone and uh, religious uh, tolerance. Which I then, after that, hope to uh, finish. But in the far future, um, you know, I want to, I want to use, you know, art as a story. It sounds a bit, you know, dodgy or a bit silly, but to make the world a better place, you know, just to a more beautiful place. I think there's a lot of people, of course, want to promote goodness, but it's also important to promote beauty. Truth and beauty. Yeah. Matthew Arnold, <laughs> amongst others. Truth, beauty and joy. Let's drink to that. Truth, beauty and joy. And Hollywood. Global you, Hollywood. Global Hollywood. That's your book. <laughs> Just before we sign off though. You can't I, say goodbye. I can't, no we can't say goodbye. I can't leave this without asking you a little more about your essay on the elementary forms of religious life. Well, I mean, it's such a, you know, I'm used to interviewing actors, I'm used to in artists, I'm used to interviewing academics. 
But normally when you interview one, you don't have the other one suddenly jump in. <laughs> and here they are, they're both inside your brain. Well, you know, when I say, when I speak more passionately about acting, it's because it's easier. Because it's quite hard to, to, to talk passionately about academia, but I do enjoy it a lot. And it gives me a lot of satisfaction. But it's also about writing, it's not about words, you know? As an actor, as, an, as a sociologist, you're, you're writing. But anyway, your question is... My question is about Durkheim, yeah? the great man. Why I read that? Why no, no, I write what, what, what you're saying in the essay. Well, um... Obviously, we just have to have this, uh, this YouTube film uh, about uh, Islam and uh, huge uh, repercussions all over the world. This is the American anti-Islamic <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, the, So, I am interested in uh, the difference that uh, Durkheim makes between uh, the sacred and the profane. Uh, and the way he approaches religion as an expression of collective life. Yeah. and the life together um, so basically the interesting thing what I what I find interesting in his work is that religion religion essentially is what shares us religion is everything religion by definition he argues refers to something that is bigger than the individual the shared identity so my uh, essay and about solidarity. So my thesis is that uh, conflicts within religion, as we have now yeah. between Muslims and, and Christians, uh, might refer to a lack of uh, solidarity within mankind. And what is solidarity? That's probably you know economic solidarity. So it's not really about oh we have insulted the. The prophet, the underlying cause is we are dying, we don't have money, and you are there in your big houses in LA, and my our children are dying because there's a huge uh, difference in income between the Muslim and the Christian world. So I'm, I'm now just thinking about whether the so-called religious conflict is not in fact, uh, you know, in a more materially driven. Not just not materially, but a sense of solidarity uh, about the feeling, a sort of hopelessness. You do not care about us. Yeah. yeah. That's a wonderful insight. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and I hope that at some point in the future, thank you so much, uh, perhaps when you've completed your Sierra Leone film, perhaps when you've come back from Robben Island, I hope you get out. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed <laughs> and toes. I hope that you'll come back and join us again and tell us more about some of your adventures. I would love to. Fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs>